From New York, this is Democracy Now! This is a devastating tragedy for this community and the families touched by this unspeakable act of violence. California is reeling after three mass shootings in three days. On Monday, a gunman in Half Moon Bay shot dead seven former co-workers, reportedly all Chinese and Latinx farm workers. Meanwhile, the death toll from Saturday's mass shooting at a dance studio in Monterey Park on Lunar New Year has reached 11. Both gunmen are believed to be Asian men over the age of 65. And then there was a mass shooting in Oakland Monday night. We'll go to California for the latest. Then we look at the growing probe into President Biden's mishandling of classified documents after the FBI searched his home for nearly 13 hours. We'll speak with The Intercept's Jeremy Scahill. These scandals about mishandling classified documents, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, has really exposed the hypocrisy in elite Washington. Low-level people have the book thrown at them for mishandling classified information. They go to prison. Elite political figures almost never have anything meaningful happen to them, maybe a slap on the wrist. Uh, But what this is exposing is the hypocrisy from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and beyond, where you have one set of rules for elite Washington and another set of rules, not only for low-level officials, but for whistleblowers who have the book thrown at them. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In California, seven people were killed and another person critically injured Monday as a gunman opened fire on two sites in the coastal community of Half Moon Bay. Police say the suspect, 67-year-old Chun Li Zhao, turned himself into police after the massacres. Authorities could not confirm whether the semi-automatic weapon he used was obtained legally. A local official says the victims were Chinese and Latinx farm workers at a local mushroom farm where Zhao reportedly worked for decades. Dave Pine is with San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. But in the end, there are simply too many guns in this country, and there has to be a change. This is not an acceptable way for a modern society to, to live its, and conduct its affairs. There have been three mass shootings in California in the past three days. In Oakland, California, at least one person was killed and another seven injured in a shootout at a gas station just after 6 p.m. on Monday night. It came as police in Des Moines, Iowa, charged an 18-year-old with murder after a shooting at a center that provides education for struggling high school students. Two students were killed in Monday's assault in Iowa, and a teacher was injured. Meanwhile, the death toll from Saturday night's massacre at a Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park, California, has risen to 11 after another victim died in the hospital. Investigators said Monday they recovered 42 bullet casings from the scene of the attack, the Star Ballroom Dance Studio. A 26-year-old man is being credited with thwarting an even larger tragedy after he wrestled the shooter's gun away from him at a second 
studio. Brandon Say said he confronted the 72-year-old gunman, Hu Kan Tran, after Tran drove to another dance hall and appeared to be loading his semi-automatic assault pistol. Something came over me. I realized I needed to get the weapon away from him. I needed to take this weapon, disarm him, or else everybody would have died. Police reportedly took five hours to alert the public that the gunman was on the loose Saturday night. Tran was found dead the next day of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his van. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office has so far named four of his victims, among them 65-year-old Mamai Nan, whose family said in a statement Monday— Quote, she spent so many years going to the dance studio in Monterey Park on weekends. It's what she loved to do. But unfairly, Saturday was her last dance, unquote. On Monday, residents of Monterey Park held a candlelight vigil to mourn the victims of Saturday's massacre. Local resident An Lao organized the vigil. We never thought that it would be one of us. And it's so shocking. We can't accept it. And the reason we came together is basically I was talking to our friends and I thought we have to do something just to just to get our emotions out, just to comfort each other, just to tell each other that we can go forward. In the wake of the shootings, cities including New York and Los Angeles have stepped up security precautions for Lunar New Year celebrations, fearing more violence against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. After headlines, we'll speak with Dr. Connie, Dr. Connie Wun, co-founder of the AAPI Women Lead Organization, and Nick Saplina of the group Every Town for Gun Safety. A warning to our audience, the following headline contains graphic images and descriptions of police violence. In Tennessee, the parents of a 29-year-old African-American man who died after he was brutally beaten by Memphis police say their son was defenseless during the ordeal. Tyree Nichols died of kidney failure and cardiac arrest on January 10th, three days after his violent arrest following a traffic stop. On Monday, Memphis officials privately showed police body cam footage of Nichols' arrest to family and attorneys. They said after viewing the video, Nichols was pepper sprayed, tased, restrained, kicked, and beaten. This is family attorney Antonio Romanucci. He was defenseless the entire time. He was a human pinata for those police officers. It was an unadulterated, unabashed, nonstop beating of this young boy for three minutes. Oh, my God. That is what we saw in that video. In the wake of Nichols' death, Memphis police officials fired five officers for violating department policies, including use of excessive force, failing to render aid. Like Nichols, all five of the former officers are black. Tyree Nichols was a skilled skateboarder, an amateur photographer, and father— to a young son. 
Four more members of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, were convicted of seditious conspiracy Monday for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election, resulting in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Last month, the jury also convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes of the same charges. In related news, an Arkansas man who was photographed with his boot on a desk in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office during the attack on the Capitol was convicted Monday on eight charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding. Richard Barnett, who was also convicted for carrying a stun gun inside the Capitol, faces up to 47 years in prison. This follows the arrests of three active-duty Marines who've been charged for taking part in the Capitol insurrection. Mika Coomer, Joshua Bate, and Dodge Dale Hellinen were among the mob of Trump supporters attempting to stop the counting of the electoral votes on January 6, 2021. Here in New York, a former senior FBI official was indicted in a federal court in Manhattan Monday after prosecutors accused him of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes and conspiring to get Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska removed from a U.S. sanctions list. 54-year-old Charles McGonigal pleaded not guilty to the charges, which include money laundering and violating U.S. sanctions. The United States and Israel have launched one of their largest ever joint military exercises in the latest ratcheting up of tensions over Iran's nuclear program. The exercise, codenamed Juniper Oak, involves thousands of soldiers, a dozen naval vessels and over 140 warplanes, including nuclear-capable bombers. In the occupied West Bank, Palestinian protesters gathered Monday at the site of a Bedouin village after two high-profile Israeli lawmakers demanded its demolition to make way for illegal Israeli settlements. This is Aija Halim, a spokesperson for the Bedouin villagers. The existence of settlements here means fragmentation of the West Bank. This village is the key for peace in the Middle East, or the dream of every Palestinian for the establishment of a state. If this village is taken and gone, and they confiscate the area from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, the West Bank will be split into West Bank, North and South. On Monday, Human Rights Watch warned in a new report that Israeli guidelines on access to the West Bank for foreigners threatened to further isolate Palestinians from loved ones in global civil society. The group added in a statement, quote, by making it harder for people to spend time in the West Bank, Israel's taking yet another step toward turning the West Bank into another Gaza, where two million Palestinians have lived virtually sealed off from the outside world for over 15 years, unquote. In Brazil, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has fired the commander of Brazil's army two weeks after the attempted coup and violent attack on government buildings in the capital, Brasilia, by supporters of the far-right former president Jair Bolsonaro. Army General Julio César de Azuja is the highest ranking of dozens of military officers removed by President Lula over their suspected involvement in the January 8th riots. In other news from Brazil, authorities said Monday they've identified a Colombian illegal fish trader and gang leader as the person suspected of orchestrating the murders of British journalist Dom Phillips and Brazilian indigenous advocate Bruno Pereira last June. Ruben Dario de Silva Villar 
is already in the custody of Brazilian police. He's accused of running an illegal fishing network near Brazil's borders with Peru and Colombia, and the region where Pereira and Phillips went missing days before their remains were found. Meanwhile, the Brazilian president, Lula, has accused Jair Bolsonaro's far-right government of committing genocide against the Yanomami people of the Amazon. Lula's remarks came after he visited Yanomami communities as they face a humanitarian and health crisis triggered by illegal mining that polluted rivers and destroyed forests, depriving people of key food sources. Brazil's justice minister said he plans to order a federal investigation into the crimes. The music and audio streaming giant Spotify says it's laying off 6 percent of its workforce, about 600 workers. Nearly 50,000 employees at U.S.-based tech companies have been laid off so far this year, following nearly 100,000 tech layoffs last year. In California, workers at a Pete's Coffee store in Davis have approved the coffee chain's first union. Pete's Workers United celebrated the victory, tweeting, we will not be the last, unquote. Starbucks Workers United, which has unionized hundreds of Starbucks shops across the U.S., said on social media, quote, solidarity from coffee shop to coffee shop, welcome to the labor movement. And in Alabama, a worker who helped lead an unsuccessful union organizing drive at Amazon's warehouse in Bessemer says he was abruptly fired without explanation. Daryl Richardson, who led a campaign to organize his co-workers into the retail, wholesale and department store union, says he was given no reason for the firing, but he believes it was because of his union activity. This comes just days after the National Labor Relations Board threw out Amazon's objections to a union drive at the company's massive Staten Island warehouse, known as JFK 8, declaring the Amazon labor union won last April's election. To date, it's the only successful unionization campaign at an Amazon facility. It came as the percentage of U.S. workers who are members of a union fell to a new low in 2022, just over 10 percent of the working population. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, California's reeling after three mass shootings in three days. We'll go to California for the latest. Stay with us. Seasons Lost Winter by Jennifer Coe. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago, Illinois. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
We begin today's show in California, which is reeling after three mass shootings in three days. On Monday, a gunman shot dead seven people in Half Moon Bay, a seaside town located about 30 miles south of San Francisco. The gunman targeted a mushroom farm in a nearby trucking facility. The vice mayor of Half Moon Bay said the victims included Chinese and Latinx farm workers. Police arrested 67-year-old Zhao Chun-li after they found him in his car outside a sheriff's substation. He reportedly worked at the mushroom farm for decades, killing his co-workers. San Mateo County Board of Supervisor Dave Pine spoke Monday. Uh, we grieve tonight for the deceased members of our community. This is a horrific event, one that we would never imagine would occur in San Mateo County. Uh, gun violence in this country is at completely unacceptable levels. It's really hit home tonight. Our hearts are broken. We are deeply grateful for law enforcement for their work this evening. But in the end, there are simply too many guns in this country. And there has to be a change. This is not an acceptable way for a modern society to, to live its, and conduct its affairs. The shooting in Half Moon Bay comes a day after a gunman in Southern California opened fire inside a ballroom dance studio after a Lunar New Year celebration in the largely Asian-American city of Monterey Park, east of Los Angeles. The death toll in that shooting is now 11. The gunman fled the scene. It took local police five hours to warn he was on the run. During that period, he attempted to attack another ballroom dance studio, but fled after being confronted by a young man in the lobby. The suspected gunman, 72-year-old Hukan Tran, fatally shot himself Sunday as a SWAT team approached his van. The group Stop AAPI Hate said in a statement, our community has faced so much tragedy and trauma over the last several years. While the details are still developing, we do know that the shooter's access to guns turned this into a massacre, they said. Meanwhile, in Oakland, California, at least one person was killed and another seven injured in a shootout at a gas station just after 6 p.m. Monday night. There have also been several other mass shootings across the country in the last few days. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old has been charged with murder after fatally shooting two students at a center for struggling high school students. A teacher was also injured in that shooting. And in Chicago, two died and three people were injured in a shooting at an apartment Saturday. And in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 12 people were injured early Sunday in a nightclub shooting. Earlier today, President Biden released a statement on the shooting in Half Moon Bay and repeated his call for Congress to pass an assault weapons ban. We're joined right now by two guests. Nick Suplina is managing director for law and policy at Every Town for Gun Safety. In Oakland, California, we're joined by Dr. Connie Wan, co-founder of the AAPI Women Lead Organization and a researcher on race and gender violence. Dr. Wan, it is horrible to go back to you because we last had you on after other killings. 
But can you talk about the experience this weekend, one after another mass killings? It is so painful to even ask you about it. Where were you when you heard about the Lunar New Year massacre? Good morning, Amy. Thank you for having me. Um, it is actually really, really painful. I was um, actually, I woke up and uh, around 11.50 uh, p.m. Pacific Standard Time to do my Lunar New Year prayers. Um, I did my prayers and I went on the internet to wish everyone a happy new year. And the first thing I saw was reports of shooting deaths um, and the mass shootings in Monterey Park. So it was um, absolutely devastating. Um, and I was up for a couple of hours. And in our cultures, um, whatever happens at midnight and on that day um, will be what is to take place for the rest of the year. And Dr. Woon, could you talk about the, the place where it happened, Monterey Park, a majority Asian population, one of the first city in the country to have a majority Asian population, uh, the significance of that city of the, the Asian community? Absolutely. You know, I've, I've been learning a lot from my, my colleagues who are with the Asian American Journalists Association, um, Asian American Studies. You know, a lot of um, what we have been saying around Monterey Park is it is a 65% um, Asian, Asian American um, city that was a ethnic enclave for so many of our communities, um, Chinese, Chinese immigrants, Chinese Americans, Southeast Asians. Uh, and it was a place where people thrive. It's a home to so many of our community members. And I think it's important to note that one of the main reasons that Monterey Park was formed was in response to, and I would say in a, against, um, kind of the United States history of marginalization and uh, xenophobia against Asian and Asian Americans. And while the city is a thriving city um, for generations, um, it was um, in response to the racism of the U.S.'s history. And the uh, and the news that the the assailant uh, who perpetrated this horrific crime uh, was a Vietnamese uh, uh, immigrant. Could you uh, supposedly police believe that may have been uh, related to grievances he held about particular individuals? Uh, your your response to hearing that this was this was an attack on the Asian community by a, another Southeast Asian. Uh, I thank you for that question, Juan. I think you know I've been saying this um, for a number of years. There. The violence against Asians and Asian Americans is multi-layered, and it extends far beyond the discourses of hate or even hate crimes. The violence against us has been historical, and I think that it's really important that we also begin, mainstream America in particular, begin to really have an intersectional analysis of racial and gender violence. Um, and in particular, I want to say racial and patriarchal violence, right? Because I think you know, reports have said that uh, Mr. Jung is, uh, or he had a, a history of being angry, um, that there may be some relationship to interpersonal violence, uh, perhaps gender-based violence. And I think, you know, survivors of and victims of patriarchal violence are across the gender spectrum. And I think that's important because we don't talk enough painfully about patriarchal violence within our communities. And by our communities, I mean across 
racial communities. Um, I think the United States um, and globally has a longstanding history of femicide um, and of harming uh, people based upon patriarchal violence. Another thing I really want to talk about is violence is about um, isolating, isolation and marginalization. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, Monterey Park is a suburb, a um, ethnic enclave. I want to also highlight that um, Half Moon Bay, when we're talking about Chinese farmers, people only know Half Moon Bay as a beach, as a place for surfing. We don't talk about the isolated, marginalized Chinese farm workers or Latinx farm workers, um, or even the Latino who was also killed in Monterey Park, right? We're not talking about the ways that communities of color are isolated, even if we have thriving communities. And when we're in isolation, we are um, most vulnerable to other forms of, of of violence, including the forms that you all are talking about. And as someone who's here in Oakland, you know, the violence against our communities are barely addressed. And I think that is also indicative and symptomatic of a U.S. culture that isolates communities of color um, and don't, does not provide us resources or care, let alone have nuanced understandings of our communities. I wanted to turn to California Congressmember Judy Chu, who called for greater gun safety measures in the wake of the Monterey shooting. She represents California's 28th district, home to Monterey Park, where that first attack took place this weekend. It is hard to say first attack, second attack, third gun shootings, uh, mass shootings. But this is Congressmember Chu. I could not believe the extent of the violence. Ten people dead. This was one of the worst mass shootings in L.A. County and um, one of the worst in the nation. And I was also outraged because there are far too many of these mass shootings going on. We have to take actions to make sure that people are safe in America. I have joined the Gun Safety Caucus in Congress, and we have worked on legislation that should have passed a long time ago, such as on the universal background checks, which have proven to take guns out of dangerous people's hands. I want to say to those who are resistant to these gun safety laws, protect America, protect your fellow neighbors. And this is California Senator Alex Padilla also urging stronger gun control laws. We do uh, take it as uh, a reminder of the urgency with which we need to strengthen our gun safety laws across the country. Uh, many of my colleagues have pointed out, you know, doesn't California have some of the strictest laws and protections of any state in the nation? That is true. And they have worked. And it is helpful. But when there's a patchwork of laws and protections to various degrees across states, then clearly there are vulnerabilities that can uh, impact any community in the country. And so for um, the uh, f individuals in the community here in Monterey Park, throughout the region and throughout the country that are living in slightly more fear today because of what's been witnessed, uh, this is a reminder that more needs to be done. In addition to Dr. Connie Wan, we are joined by Nick Suplina. He is managing director for law and policy um, at Every Town for Gun Safety. Nick, 
<clears throat> when they were looking for the Monterey gunman, hour after hour, certainly there were bullet shell casings because he had massacred 10 people. Eleven have since died when succumbed to their injuries. If there was a federal database, they could have gone right to it and found the person who owned the gun. Not clear if that would have been the murderer, but that's— um, a very good start. But there is no federal database. And then you have President Biden calling for an assault weapons ban. The Democrats have been in charge until now of both the Senate and the House. Um, can you talk about the lack of gun control in this country and how alone the United States is in the industrialized world in the number of mass shootings there are? Yeah, well, thanks for that. I I feel like as we're grieving across California and across the country, we have to look at the fact that we've come to almost expect these types of mass shootings, but we cannot accept them because we are alone uh, in the in the developed world to facing gun violence levels uh, like we do in America. And it's it's not freedom. It's not safety. And we have to do so much more. We have to do it at the federal level. Uh, we need Congress to act. We need bipartisan action in Congress. We saw some of that last summer, and it was a good start. But there is so much more to do at the federal level because, uh, you know, as as was noted, we are only as safe as the closest state with the weakest laws in this country. The patchwork of laws among uh, our states simply does not do. Uh, states with strong gun laws, we've studied it, do in fact have lower rates of gun violence, lower rates of mass shootings too. But that's not going to cut it when you can just cross a state border and find uh, firearms that are prohibited, like the gun used in Monterey Park, which was banned uh, in California uh, and illegal in, in, in several different ways. Um, you know, but one, one area that I really want to focus on uh, that is so often not part of the conversation is the gun industry that is making money off of selling increasingly dangerous firearms to just about anybody uh, who can get their hands on them. Gun industry that's more than willing to sell uh, dangerous firearms into neighboring states, knowing where they're going to end up, knowing sometimes that they'll end up on in, in, in crime scenes across the country. You know, over a recent five-year period, uh, over 1.4 million guns were recovered by law enforcement and crimes. There's there are manufacturers who are making these guns, sellers who are selling these guns, and they have decided to bury their head in the sand instead of addressing the problem. I really think if we're going to have a, a national conversation around uh, gun violence and what we can do to prevent it, we have to talk about the industry's role in this carnage. And Nick Suplina, just a few days before the, the mass shooting at Monterey Park, uh, one of the largest gun shows in the country was occurring in neighboring uh, Nevada, in Las Vegas, uh, the SHOT Show. Uh, could you talk about the significance of this conference and the student activism that occurred for the first time to raise awareness? And given the failure of Congress to enact a meaningful gun reform legislation, is it becoming increasingly necessary for uh, for people to begin protesting uh, directly these gun shows and and uh, confronting uh, the gun lobby? 
Well, I think so. I think so because the gun manufacturers and sellers are, are the proverbial man behind the curtain. They're the ones that are profiting off of an American public health crisis. Uh, and unless we protest, unless we call attention to this industry, they're going to continue to hide and continue to you know, uh, benefit from a national conversation that's just about uh, gun safety versus gun rights. But let me tell you what happened at SHOT Show. SHOT Show is the annual convention of the gun industry, literally miles of aisles of firearms, including ones uh, like the one used in Monterey uh, Park, but really, honestly, more modern versions and more deadly versions. Um, you wouldn't hear in the halls of the convention center there in Las Vegas anything about uh, mass shootings, let alone the mass shooting that occurred in Las Vegas just uh, uh, just a little bit up the strip uh, in in Las Vegas. And, you know, the gun industry has decided it's going to keep these closed events not open to the public. They're not going to address their role in gun violence. And that's why Students Demand Action, which is a, a, a grassroots arm of, of every town, decided the time is come to draw attention to the industry. Students Demand Action protesters uh, were outside the convention center. They had billboards saying a simple fact, Guns are now the leading cause of death of children and teens in America, and these students demanded to be heard. Whether or not the gun industry listens is up to it, but I will tell you, these students have the fortitude uh, and the conviction to bring these gun manufacturers and sellers to account so that they can't hide in the shadows anymore, so that they can't pretend that this isn't their problem, that criminals using guns are, is just an inevitability when they're designing guns that are more dangerous and quite honestly, not designing guns that could be more safe, right? Uh, you know, that Advil bottle in my bag has a childproof top. Why aren't guns uh, childproof? Why can't, why can my phone uh, be protected against theft, but not a firearm? There's no innovation towards safety. There's only innovation on guns that shoot faster, um, how can carry more bullets before they, you know, expire? Like it, the the fact is, is that the industry is playing us. We are we are at this point, um, you know, basically beholden to their industry profits. They want to keep selling more firearms. Uh, we need them to start acting responsibly. Um, Nick Saplina, you put out a study, every town did, um, only four firearm manufacturers accounting for over half the guns in this country. Please name the names. And also, not just the gun companies. The NRA is powerful, though it's its weakest point now, still the lack of gun control. But talk also about the National Shooting Sports Foundation and how it's outspent the NRA lobbying. Yes. Yeah, so the, the NSSF, uh, which until recently was, if you can believe it, based in Newtown, Connecticut, um, is the uh, industry trade group uh, for the entire gun industry. And they are sort of the better dressed, slightly better behaved version of the NRA. They're very powerful on the Hill. Uh, they are seen as a, a more responsible, moderate voice. But in fact, you know, nine times in 10, they are right there with the NRA opposing just about every law you can imagine. Um, any movement towards gun safety, NSSF is there to lobby against. And in fact, you know, as you noted, the NSSF is outspending the NRA in lobbying uh, now, especially as the NRA is a bit hobbled by its own um, corruption scandals and, and waste. Uh, you know, the, the fact is that uh, we got about 31 mayors 
uh, from across the country to pool guns that were recovered by law enforcement in crimes um, it, to the tune of well over 100,000 firearms over a, a several year period. And in 2021, Glock alone represented 20% of guns recovered. And again, I just want to spell this out, right? It's not that Glock is responsible for every crime committed with one of its products, but if you are responsible for 20% of the guns recovered in crimes across 30 populous cities, the biggest cities represented, wouldn't you want to do something about it as a company? Wouldn't you want to say, okay, well, we want to continue selling our product uh, because many people never use it in a crime and and are completely law-abiding. But wouldn't we want to look and see, I don't know, whether some of the dealers that our guns are being sold at are looking the other way for straw purchases or or selling out the back of the store? I mean, we know this is happening. ATF has shown that this is happening. But the gun manufacturers claim ignorance or disinterest in knowing what happens to their guns when they leave the factory floor. And that has to change. So it starts with naming them. Thank you for that question. Glock is the is the leading uh, uh, maker of crime guns uh, in the country, based on our report. Three. And and speaking of the naming names, could you also name the names in Congress in both parties uh, of those uh, co- those members of Congress who keep resisting common sense uh, gun control, not, not just Republicans, but also Democrats as well? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it varies issue to issue. But what I will say is this. I think we have in the Congress now uh, an uphill battle. Uh, we have, you know, a divided, divided Congress. I think things are changing. And if I, if you'll indulge me with a little bit of optimism on what is an absolutely awful day of series of mass shootings across the country and, and daily gun violence that is too high, we have our foot in the door from the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act legislation from last summer. You know, 15 Republican senators signed on to the bill uh, for a vote of 65 in the Senate, 100 percent of Democrats, which did not happen the last time uh, we had a major Senate floor vote uh, back in 2013 on background checks. There were several Democratic defectors. Um, so we are strengthening um, a bipartisan solution, but we're going to need a big bipartisan solution uh, to get anything through the Senate. And nowadays uh, in the House, it is a tall order. Uh, quite honestly, um, we are going to need to deal with really bad gun laws coming out of this House, uh, including some really, really dangerous proposals um, that are just that, that are going to be the focus of attention. Far, far from uh, sensible wildly popular gun safety legislation, we're going to be fighting against, um, you know, uh, uh, rollbacks of of existing laws. And finally, um, we're going to give Dr. Connie one the last word. What AAPI Women Lead is calling for uh, in the wake of one massacre after another? Thanks for that question. Um, There are a couple things that we are calling for. One is um, a lot more attention to the different forms of violence that Asians and Asian Americans uh, have been experiencing. I think it's important to remember that you were talking about, at least in the Monterey Park, um, we're talking about a Vietnamese refugee immigrant. Um, I want us to think about the legacy um, of violence and the impacts that the war has had. The war 
in Vietnam has had um, on our migration and what that has meant for our presence here as Vietnamese people in the United States. So I want us, I want the mainstream, and I want people to pay closer attention and to study the non the the nuances of what it means to be Asian and Asian American here beyond the hate crime discourse. Right. I want us to think a lot about racial the intersections of racial and patriarchal violence. I I think you know people. We hadn't talked about this on this call, but 60% of mass shooters are, have histories with domestic violence. Um, so that then means that I would like for the mainstream to also pay attention to patriarchal violence in Asian and Asian American communities, because it is um, a little bit more rampant than I think our communities even want to acknowledge. And I think that's important. I think the other thing is to continue to support organizations um, and researchers and scholars who are also talking about the nuances of being Asian and Asian American here. Again, beyond a hate crime discourse, but about our legacies of violence, our legacies of resistance, um, our legacies of struggle, our legacies of working with other communities of color. I think that's going to be really, really important to really understand what violence means to our communities. I think the other thing is for people to not commodify and monetize the suffering of our communities. I think that is a big thing that has happened since people started paying attention to the violence against our communities. Because as I noted, you know, about two years ago on this call with you, the violence against us has been ongoing. The war in Vietnam, our, uh, the wars against uh, Southeast Asia, our imperialism, colonization, that to me is also the violence that we've experienced. And then the forced immigration here or the migration here, the lack of services here, um, the fact that we have to create thriving ethnic enclaves, um, but are also isolated. I think people really need to pay attention to why it is we've been isolated or why it is we're marginalized. Um, I think that um, attention and those nuances are going to be key to our survival. Um, I also think that people really need, again, um, to not capitalize off of the suffering of our communities and pay close attention, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think the other thing um, is... To we have the 20 seconds. Perfect. I think to also center the histories of our communities um, especially from women uh, and non-binary communities who've been working around ending violence against our communities for a very long time. Dr. Connie Wan, we thank you so much for being with us, co-founder of the AAPI Women Lead Organization, a researcher on race and gender violence. And thanks to Nick Saplina, Managing Director of Law and Policy at Every Town for Gun Safety. Coming up, The Intercept's Jeremy Scahill on the growing probe into President Biden's mishandling of classified documents after the FBI searched his home for nearly 13 hours. Stay with us. Everyone says, sooner or later you'll reach the end of the line. When things get rough, some think it's easy to jump the ship.
Control by Ingo Boingo here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Political pressure is growing on President Biden after the FBI searched his home for nearly 13 hours Friday, found more classified documents. The documents date back to Biden's vice presidency and his time as a senator. Earlier this month, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel after other classified documents were discovered at a former office used by Biden and at his home. This all comes as former President Donald Trump also faces a special counsel probe into his mishandling of classified documents and for ignoring requests from the National Archive to return missing presidential records. In August, the FBI searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and found 184 documents with classification markings. To talk more about these stories and related issues, we're joined by the award-winning investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. His latest article, The Secrets Presidents Keep in Their Garages and Luxury Resorts, The Ceaseless Political Scandals Over Classified Documents Point to Deeper Systemic Problems with Washington's Obsession with Secrecy. Jeremy, it's great to have you back on with us. Um, why don't you just talk about the uh, what's happening with both Biden and Trump and what you really call the scandal of classification overall? Who gets caught and who doesn't? Right. Amy, it's, I think it's really important just at the beginning to remember that the reason some of the laws and regulations are in place that govern President Biden's conduct regarding classified documents or then Vice President uh, Biden's or President Trump's is because of the scandals in the Nixon administration where there was this uh, attempt and in some cases act, actual action uh, taken to destroy documents. So it's not just about classified documents. It's also that the president is the ultimate public servant, uh, according to the to the law. And everything they do as president has to be documented. We, the people, may not have a right to know everything they did immediately, but ultimately they are doing a job that is funded by the public and is uh, part of a democratic process. So it's not just classified documents that we're talking about. It's all of the records. Donald Trump was notorious as president for ripping up all kinds of documents and for completely rejecting um, many of the norms that are supposed to govern the executive branch in terms of document retention. And what happened was that when he left office, he still was thinking, OK, I, I might be able to overturn this election. And we, we all know how that unfolded. Um, and he's also being investigated for his actions um, around trying to reverse the election results as well as the events of uh, January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Um, so Trump is notorious for trying to destroy documents. He had been warned repeatedly about this practice by people close to him who were lawyers, and he seemed not to care much about it. And according to Trump, there was a standing order uh, at the White House when he was president that uh, simply by thinking about declassifying documents, they they became declassified. And, and the specificity of it was that anytime Trump would take documents to his personal residence at the White House, by default, they became unclassified. So fast forward to the waning days of his administration, right, right up actually to the helicopter taking out, off the lawn, uh, you know, hours before President Biden was uh, sworn into office, uh, you had uh, boxes of documents that were shipped from Washington to Trump's resort home in Palm Beach, Florida at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and the National Archives, which is an apolitical entity within the government that is in charge of uh, securing all of these documents, making sure that the historical record is preserved, um, making sure the classification guidelines are followed along with the relevant security agencies, um, started to say to, to Trump's people, um, there are documents missing. And uh, 
what Trump did from the very beginning was uh, lie, um, block access, uh, stymie the efforts of the National Archive to retain some of these documents. And ultimately, this went on for about a year. And then in early 2022, Donald Trump's uh, lawyers tell him, you know, you really have to return this stuff. So they give what we understand to be roughly half of the documents we know Trump to have taken. It's possible he took many, many more of them. This probe is still going on. Uh, but what's relevant to this is that once it became clear that Donald Trump was holding documents and that some of them were secret, top secret, uh, even above top secret, uh, you know, uh, top secret SCI, where you had compartmentalized information, code word secret documents. Once Trump's people return that initial batch to the National Archive and investigators start looking at what exact documents Trump had taken, uh, what we understand is that they felt that that there was a very serious risk that Trump had taken very uh, sensitive documents. So they they then try to compel Trump to hand more of these documents over. And the allegation is that uh, Trump lied or his team lied to investigators, lied to the government, uh, refused to fully comply with a subpoena. And ultimately, Attorney General Merrick Garland signs off on an extraordinary search warrant uh, that was executed last summer in August, where FBI agents uh, conducted a raid at Mar-a-Lago and then seized hundreds of boxes, uh, dozens of boxes more containing 150 uh, plus documents from Trump. And in the affidavit uh, that the FBI filed in support of that search warrant, they said that they believed that they were going to find evidence of crimes, uh, including some provisions under the Espionage Act that have to do with the handling of classified information. This is all extraordinarily relevant to what would then happen with President Biden, because as the Democrats have done since before Trump was uh, elected president, they have portrayed Trump as uh, a, a stooge for Vladimir Putin, as in the pay of Russia, as doing the bidding of foreign powers. And this document story fed into that narrative. And there was this feeding frenzy, particularly when we learned um, that Merrick Garland had, had authorized this uh, search warrant to be conducted at Trump's property. And so they really went to town on this. In fact, Joe Biden appears on 60 Minutes just this past September and, and is asked about this. And he says, how could someone be so irresponsible? And that his first reaction when he saw the FBI photos of documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago was what sources and methods have been compromised? Well, fast forward to November 2nd, Joe Biden's uh, lawyers are shutting down an office that had been set up just blocks from the U.S. Capitol for Biden in the period between his vice presidency and his presidency at, at the University of Penn. It was called the Penn Biden Center. And the managing director of the Penn Biden Center uh, was Tony Blinken, who, of course, now is you know, a very, very senior uh, official in the Biden administration. And they one of the lawyers just comes across in a locked closet. And mind you, all of this is based on what the Biden people have said. So we have to take it with a grain of salt because people in power mislead and they lie and all of these things. But taking them at their word, the narrative is that they discovered a manila envelope that was marked personal. And inside of this envelope uh, was a document containing uh, classification markings. So they continue to search and they find other documents that appear to be classified. 
the Biden people then at the White House are informed about this. And Biden doesn't uh, widely share this information with people in his administration. Instead, they gather together an informal war council and among the people in this war council to try to determine how to handle this. Mind you, they know immediately how incendiary this is. They have gone to town on Donald Trump over his mishandling of classified information. And the midterm elections are just days away. So the Biden people gather an informal war council with Bob Bauer, who is a very famous Democratic elite power lawyer, and Bauer's wife, Anita Dunn. Anita Dunn, who is a senior advisor to Biden, was an official in the uh, Obama White House, also was called by Harvey Weinstein uh, when he when the New York Times was about to break the story of his heinous crimes against women. And she so she was like a PR guru brought in by Harvey Weinstein. She's then in the room trying to figure out how the Biden people are going to respond to this. And so what they ultimately decide is let's self-report this uh, to the Justice Department and to the archives. And let's just try to do the opposite of what Trump has done. Let's just be completely transparent with them in the hopes that this will all go away. And what we now know is that the Biden plan was not to say a word about this to the public until there could be a clearing of them by the Justice Department. Well, then the nightmare starts to happen when more documents are discovered in late December, not in a locked closet in a think tank blocks from the Capitol, but literally on the floor of Joe Biden's garage next to his prized Corvette. Um, they did not for 68 days, the American public was not told that the president of the United States had discovered documents that were not supposed to be in his possession once he left office, and that, in fact, that had been a prime attack vector that they had opened up against Donald Trump. Biden only acknowledged the first batch of documents, not the garage documents, when CBS News broke the news that there had been uh, an initial probe launched by Merrick Garland involving the U.S. attorney out of Chicago. So, you have, on the one hand, the scandal of the documents themselves, which really deserves heavy, heavy scrutiny on both uh, Biden and Trump. But then you also have the fact that the Biden people uh, clearly were not planning on informing the American public about this, and they definitely delayed it until after the midterm elections and probably would have delayed it uh, to this very day, thinking that they could just get cleared internally by the Justice Department. And Jeremy, could you talk about the... Uh the double standard uh, that operates in Washington in terms of classified material remind us of some of the high-powered people who were caught uh, uh, inappropriately uh, or illegally yeah. using material, but then got slaps on the wrist compared to whistleblowers and uh, and others. Yeah, great question, Juan. I mean, one of the most famous episodes was uh, Bill Clinton's former national security advisor, Sandy Berger. In 2003, Berger made a number of trips to the National Archives uh, and uh, physically removed multiple copies of a document that had to do with the Clinton administration's preparations for terrorism attacks. And Berger had been called to testify in 2003 uh, before the 9-11 Commission. And so his rationale for going into the National Archives with that was that he was preparing for testimony, but he actually stuffed documents, uh, classified documents inside of his clothing and then brought them out of the National Archives. He destroyed some of those documents. He left others of them near a construction site that he said he was going to go and pick them up later. And, and ultimately, Sandy Berger gets caught. I mean, mind you, this is 
destroying classified documents. And, and you know, there's serious questions about what, what Sandy Berger was actually doing there. That's probably for a different time. But what ended up happening is that Berger was just sentenced to probation. He lost his security clearance for a few years. And I believe as a result of it, he was also disbarred. So no, no actual criminal penalties to speak of. Former CIA director David Petraeus uh, improperly uh, shared classified documents with his biographer, with whom he was also having an affair. Um, now that brought him down, um, you know, as CIA director. Uh, but ultimately, he just got probation and a one hundred thousand dollar fine. There are also cases, one of uh, government employees, very junior people who, to, who uh, mishandled classified documents for pretty mundane purposes. I tell the story of one woman who uh, was unable to access documents she was using for a classified uh, dissertation that she was writing. And she had taken three other classified dissertations because COVID restrictions wouldn't allow her to go into a SCIF anymore, a secure classified intelligence facility. She was given three months um, in prison and basically had her entire career destroyed. You know, Joe Biden has been in Washington longer than anyone at this point. He is the epitome of the kind of career politician who's made their entire life off of Washington. And Biden himself tanked the nomination of Ted Sorensen to be Jimmy Carter's CIA director because Sorensen, this is in the 70s, Biden as an early senator, because Sorensen had written in an affidavit in support of Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower. The affidavit wasn't even filed, but Sorensen, who was a friend of the Kennedy family, was going to be a total reformer at the CIA. Biden colludes with the Republicans. They dig up this unfiled affidavit in which Ted Sorensen admits that he had taken home classified documents to write uh, his biography of his good friend John F. Kennedy. And at the time, Biden said, suggested that Sorensen might be prosecuted under the Espionage Act for such conduct. The point Sorensen was making is that everyone in Washington takes home classified documents. So, you know, with Biden, we now have this, you know, doc, doc, goose here, a doc, there, a doc, everywhere, a doc, doc. With Trump, we have this defiant, yes, I did it. I had a right to do it. And anything that I do to stop you from violating points one and two, I'm right in doing. This is a disaster, though, for Joe Biden, because the Republicans control the House. They are going to go after him. They're going to bring in Hunter Biden. Did the Chinese have access to the garage? They'll ignore Trump completely. You know, totally reckless behavior on Trump's part. But they are going to go to town on Joe Biden over this. And there are skeletons in Joe Biden's closet. We all know that. And so this this is going to be a really incendiary period for this White House. Jeremy, we want to ask you to stay with us. We'll do part two after the show at democracynow.org. Jeremy Scahill, senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept. His latest piece will link to the secrets presidents keep in their garages and luxury resorts. And the war caucus always wins. And the nominations for the Oscars have just been announced. Nominees for best foreign film include Argentina 1985. Visit democracynow.org to see our interview with the director, uh, Santiago Mitre. Also, the nominees for for best documentary feature film are All That Breathes, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Fire of Love, A House Made of Splinters, and Navalny, about the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Cherina Nadura. Um, Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tommy Warrenoff, Sam Alkoff, Cherina Nadura, Tay Maria Studio. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.